fight alone, never fight alone, right? It's closer collaboration. And really, the autonomy makes it a force multiplying capability. With that enabling ecosystem, and I... we're not able to collaborate. So it allows us to use both of our strengths. And then there's neuromorphic processing. I think we have come so far between our two nations. Where is artificial intelligence going? How do we empower our workforce to embrace and use new capabilities? How can we best leverage the resources we have? These are some of the questions the Australian Army and the United States Marine Corps are solving together. Hello and welcome to the Adapting Army podcast. Over this series, I'll be speaking to the movers and shakers who are leading into the future with innovative approaches and groundbreaking technologies. Today, we're joined by Major Stephen Spike Atkinson from the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, who is leading the robotic, autonomy and artificial intelligence branch in the United States. We also have Lieutenant Colonel Adam Hepworth with us, joining us from the Robotic and Autonomous Systems Implementation and Coordination Office, or RICO. In this episode, you'll hear how the United States Marine Corps and the Australian Army are approaching emerging technology, showcasing the information exchange and shared experimentation to identify capability gaps, integrate technology and leverage shared opportunities. Well, thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Thanks very much us. for having us, Cam. Okay, so Major Stephen Spike Atkinson, um, if I'm to refer to you as Spike through our discussion, we need to know the origin of that, please. Yeah, so I'm a Cobra pilot by trade. I was given the call sign uh, very generously by my commanding officer back in 2016, and it was because of my hairstyle, which I spike. So normally call signs are not uh, friendly. Uh, usually they're derogatory in some manner, and I actually got lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, Adam, you can confirm that is a spiky hairstyle, right? Yeah, it's got a good four or five inches, I'd say, yeah. on the top of it. <laughs> it's very nice. So, Spike, your experience within the American Marines, both on the ground and in the air, is it's extensive. Can you give us a snapshot of your career? Yeah, so I enlisted uh, shortly after 2001, after 9-11, so I'm from New York. Uh, so I want to get in as soon as I could. So I enlisted. Uh, I went to boot camp in 2003. I was a radio repairman for nine years. I did time with uh, the, you know, the enlisted side of the house, did deployments Iraq, Afghanistan. Then I went to college, commissioned, uh, became a pilot. Um, after my squadron tour, I then did a tour on the ground uh, with a, a unit called Anglico, which is Air Naval Gun Liaison Company uh, out of Okinawa. And there I got to see a lot of the world, specifically in the Pacific. And now I'm at uh, the Marine Corps War Fighting Lab as the Robotics and Autonomy Branch Head for S&T, Science and Technology. Adam, it's, a, it's an impressive profile, isn't it? Yeah, very deep operational experience and uh, certainly brings a lot to the party for our collaborations in the, the operational side and the, and the technology to for what we can learn from uh, in Australia. Yeah. And, and so, Spike, is there one moment in time that you can point to where your interest in emerging technologies moved you to action and moved you to see where in the US Marines you could learn more and then advance these technologies? Yeah, I mean, it's been quite the experience. I mean, being on the ground uh, initially, you know, I, I learned a lot as my enlisted time. Um, just the, the very basics, right? And I actually did, uh, when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, I didn't do what I was trained to do in terms of job occupation. I, I went there uh, to both theaters to fix jammers, fix, you know, satellite communications I was never taught upon. 
Um, but that that's just, you know, how the military is. Uh, you don't necessarily do your job. You, you learn, and you learn from others. So uh, throughout my career, you know, here at the Marine Corps War Fighting Lab, I've been really introduced to autonomy. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky to have a physics background from my college experience. I worked for NASA for a little bit, so I understand um, you know, a little bit about computer programming, the, the aspects of engineering on, on various levels. So it's, it's helped out quite a bit in terms of, you know, three big emerging technologies. One is AI, the second one autonomy, and lastly, quantum. Um, all three are going to change not only the military, but the entire world. Um, and I, I think it's going to it's start ramping up here very shortly in the next 10 years. Okay, so I can't let it slip by when you say I worked for NASA for a bit. We, we need to know more about that, right? Yeah, so it was a very short stint. Um, when I was going to college, uh, I, a lot of my professors uh, were astrophysicists, so I got to spend some time up in Greenland uh, for NASA, um, and it was actually a grant from the National Science Foundation, and I worked on incoherent uh, scatter radars up there, so essentially measuring upper atmospheric effects, auroras, right, so uh, northern lights, if you will, um, so, and how that could affect GPS signals, uh, so a lot of funding to that because obviously the, the U.S. government is very interested in any type of alteration and in, uh, you know, any, any signals that we have for uh, ground navigation, communication, et cetera. So that was my stint with NASA. That's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you are you're genuinely over there nodding yeah, your head with a smiling face. Yeah. It, it is, right? I, I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, Adam, I'm interested also to know um, where your interest in AI stemmed from. This is the second appearance on our podcast. I don't think we touched on that last time. Where did your interest sort of emerge? I think I was always, even, even as a child, really interested in technologies, computers. I remember uh, when we were really young, um, maybe four five or six, we had our first computer in the house and being, you know, really infatuated by that um, and enjoying it. And I think that has just been a systemic theme throughout my childhood, adolescence years, and then growing up um, and continued through university, so, you know, undergraduate in maths, computer science, and then master of science and PhD in computer science. So it's just sort of been there. Um, and I think they're really interesting as at the foundation technology science level, but the cool part is when you can apply it to something meaningful, real and tangible. Mm -hmm. And that's what we get to do every day, I guess, Enrico and with McWill is take these basic research technologies and really put them into the hands of people that can make a difference to someone's life. So we'll get to Rico in a sec. I just want to timestamp this. Was this Commodore 64 back in the day or Atari or where, where were we? Uh, so I was born in the late 80s. So we're talking about like maybe, you know, 94. Four, I think we had our first computer. Wow. So, and and yeah. did you physically pull it apart and look at it? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Pentium 233, two, I think it was at the time, which, uh, you know, less computational power than uh, even an iPhone a decade ago. So, uh, yeah, but a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and so then how did you find your way into Rico? Um, I first met our former director, Colonel Robin Smith. It would have been 2018 uh, when he was out uh, in Australia. And um at the time, he was asked to look at our first uh, robotic and autonomous system strategy and have a look at what that could be doing. I was working in a, uh, a, a directorate that's related to RICO, which is in the force design and ops analysis area. And I was doing a lot of data science, quantitative work, stochastic modeling. Um, so just using math for military problems effectively. 
And as he was going through that strategy and working it through, he was looking at what the opportunities, how we can integrate RAS into the force design process. And um, I'd just started my PhD at the time. And I was like, oh, I'm doing this swarm technologies, AI type work. Um, and I think this sort of just started um, from there really of conversations. And when I was up for a, a posting in 2021, it was the natural fit to sort of head into the organization. So watching from the outside for a couple of years as the Rico profile grew from one person asked to write a strategy to you know five or six people working with a number of the programs we have now and then building you know subsequently from there. So it was almost organic. Yeah, and so it must have been exciting to be you know part of the process almost from the very beginning. Yeah, definitely watching watching that process was um, was really exciting to see from one person asked to write Raz, which I think he would say his first uh, his first one was not thinking robotics and autonomous systems for that acronym. It was something completely different yeah. um, to where we are now with um, you know a range of uh, partners not only in Australia across industry with. ARX and our other expo series, but really importantly with our partners, you know, Marines, Army in the US and the UK um, and, and other nations as well um, that really allow us to tap into a really big ecosystem of knowledge and experience. And so we have yourselves and many other individuals with many similar stories serving both countries. Let's talk about the history of collaboration between the United States Marine Corps and the Australian Army Spike. Can you give us an insight into how the current relationship has evolved? Oh, it's very strong now. I think, uh, you know, all around Washington, D.C., you constantly hear the, the importance of the AUKUS alliance um, and the importance of collaboration amongst ourselves. Um, you know, we as a, as a DOD, as a Department of Defense, completely understand that we need partnering forces. We, we cannot go it alone. Um, you know, with all the challenges that are emerging, our adversaries getting stronger. So uh, we need the help of, you know, Australia, you know, especially with, with the location that they're in is very important, strategic. Uh, we have a defense force out here, the, the MRF-D, the um, Marine Rotational Force Darwin, uh, which is roughly 2,500 Marines that are now rotating on an annual basis. So an incredibly large force. Um, you know, that just builds on to the typical exercises that we normally do, such as talisman saber, which is, again is, is also huge. I think, you know, we had tens of thousands of Marines here for that to include a 31st Mew and plenty of ships. So um, a, a large, you know, a, a huge deal for, for America. But, um, you know, the, the, the strengthening of, you know, us sharing and collaborating is, is really important for us going forward and we can't go it alone. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's it's the exercises and those venues that I think give us the opportunity to really uh, value add to the current force, but also compare notes. You know, we both look at different technologies or, or a lot of the time the same technology, uh, but we'll have different implementations or different styles. It could be two different uncrewed ground vehicles or, you know, drones or something that allows us to go, hey, what, what's good about yours? What's good about mine? How can we raise the, the level of them all together and, you know, um, have have good capability across the force and and understand how we operate um we we do a lot of things the same we do a lot of things really different as well and watching that sort of operational context is so important to understand because it's not just about the technology it's about how it sits uh, i think within that operational concept so the closer we can understand and share that awareness of each other the better we can interoperate and integrate into you know 
combined forces into the future. And, and so let's have an insight here when you see yourselves doing something differently. What does that conversation sound like at the very beginning and then how does it progress? For me, it's a lot of the time I think you're so focused down into what you're doing, you don't really notice it at that very point until later unless it's something uh, really, really big. Um, we were recently... Um, on an activity in, in the desert of California in October last year that Spike was running. Uh, and there was a few ways that the, the Marines were using technology that was really different, you know, quite um, bullish just to get in and go forward with it and really place a range of different technologies into people's hands. Uh, and I think in Australia, we'd, we wouldn't necessarily take that immediate approach and, and see everyone sort of jump at the technology all the time. Uh, and it was just different to see the, the slight nuance of how attitudes and behaviour work around the tech as well. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and so I would imagine then from there's a series of questions and the conversation just begins. A absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, has come out of that is closer collaboration between what we are, I think we actually want to get after as two services or two, two countries as well um, together, but also how we can work on that technology collaboratively or, or what the advantages are between our different systems. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right that more often than not that we find that we have very similar concepts of how we employ these technologies and how they emerge. And it's not just between the you know the two militaries and, and the three with with the UK, but also our industries, right? I mean, we just we just came over here from Boeing, um, and you know Boeing Australia and working with them, the Phantom Works uh, subgroup with them, you know they've got a lot of great ideas and you know very similar to what our industry industry is trying to pursue and what our uh, research labs are also pursuing within the, the DOD. So um, a very similar um, terms of concepts, I'd say there's, there's minor differences, but those minor differences tend to be what matters the most, you know, that 5% of, you know, what, what really is effective. So yeah, being able to share, you know, with, with the Australian Defense Force and the Army, uh, of what we're what we're accomplishing, our analysis, our data is is critical, and vice versa. You know, I mean, you know, everyone thinks you know we're this you know big entity that has so much money, and everyone turns to us for money. But and you'd be shocked about what these you know small units, what you know a twenty year old can figure out, and it's just it's especially what these kids. Some of them are just so intelligent. I mean, we went to ARX in Adelaide. I remember this kid was coming up. He was a I mean, he was in his early 20s, you know, young soldier from the ADF talking about quantum and, you know, so young and just having the, the mindset to introduce these new concepts and new theories, just phenomenal what gets brought to the table by one these. of the teams. And I think that was featured there and then came back to ARX in 2023 as well were um, two junior soldiers, I'm uh, sorry, one junior soldier and a junior sailor that actually came up with a, uh, a solution to one of those quantum problems, along with, you know, all the big name universities as well. So it's, it's kind of ironic to see that, that pairing sometimes and it, it, but it's fantastic to exactly your point to see the ingenuity. And I think not only between our nations, but um, within our own organizations, how we leverage those people and maximize that efficiency and the opportunity that's there is, is really important. And so how did you two meet? Adam, you mentioned the exercise in October last year, 2023. How long have you known each other and how did you actually come together and begin the collaboration? My recollection, I don't know if yours is the same, <laughs> is um, Spike was over in Australia early 23. Um, and I think you'd engage Rico 
before this, but early 23 for Avalon Airshow um, and was catching up with uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Alex. And after that, there was a range of sort of discussions around RAS and AI technologies. And Adam, oh, sorry, Alex was like, oh, you might want to speak to Adam and check that out. And I remember we had a call maybe March last year, April sometime. And uh, and I think what was scheduled for about 45 minutes of saying, oh, well, you know, we'll we'll tell you what we're doing and you tell us what you're doing. And that's the end. I think turned into about two hours almost on that, uh, on that team's call. Uh, and then from there, we sort of looked at, well, what are the areas we can collaborate in? What are the technologies? And we realized, I think very quickly, and particularly from my perspective, there were so many opportunities that we were looking at the same technology, but often just from a slightly different way. Um, and that was so complementary that, you know, we're looking at electric or hybrid electric UGVs. And, you know, I think you guys were looking at gas electric at the time or a different system um, of, of power. And it's like, well, now we can compare these because we've got two reference points in there. Um, and I think that's uh, so important. And from there, uh, we had an activity in um, Talesman Sabre this year where we were doing um, uh, some autonomous ISR and uh, with, with Boeing Phantom Works team. Um, and Spike came out and saw that. And then uh, Rico also went to a demo. Spike was running at the time um, and, and assessing some technology. And, and during that event, we really put together a plan of what do we want to work on? What's important to us? What are the key milestones for the next couple of years? And I think that since that time, we've really just been executing and, you know, Spike was gracious to host me in the middle of nowhere in the desert of 29 Palms uh, for a week uh, in, in 40 degrees, which was, it was genuinely fantastic, just really hot. Um, not too dissimilar to Brisbane here. Um, and then uh, again, planning, visiting uh, later on that same trip for, for this visit here. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So I actually checked into the Marine Corps War Fighting Lab in summer. So I'd say July, 2022. And the first place I went to in August was Adelaide. I mean, I was in the job for maybe a month, but I mean, it, it was very clear right when I checked in that, you know, my boss uh, made it a priority that we engage with Australia specifically. So came out, engaged with Rico uh, with almost right away. Um, I th think you guys ran the event. But one of the things, one of the key pieces of technology, I would say the epicenter of the event was the, the Bushmaster EV. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a big deal when that thing rolled out. So we knew you guys had a lot of EV data and analysis as that uh, that went forward. I, I forget what unit that was with, but we know you guys had a – it was a very impressive vehicle, bottom line. It was super quiet. Uh, and I think, you know, just the maintenance that was – reduced both routine and regular maintenance was almost like 10 times from that vehicle. I mean, that's just phenomenal data that, you know, any advantage like that will definitely take it, you know, take that opportunity. But, but yeah, then we just continue to engage with Rico. And then I finally, you know, as, as it is 2023 at the time, I believe, you know, of course we get introduced first time via VTC. I think it was a team's call, but yeah, we had a good discussion for two hours and, you know, here we are. I think this is what our fifth time meeting or something yeah. like that. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Every time in a different country. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Spike, you mentioned there the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that part of the Marines? Yeah. So the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab is it's based out of Quantico. Um, we the the lab was established in 1995. So come a very long way in terms of what we do. So it, uh, initially we we mainly focused on experimentation. Now we do a lot more S&T, so science and technology. Mm -hmm. um, and we are part of the acquisitions process, one of the initial process uh, steps for the Marine Corps in terms of we we 
find technology and then we try to integrate it into our ecosystem or architecture to make it work for the Marines. And then we, we then do experimentation. So whether Talisman Saber, uh, for example, or the, the Apollo Shield exercise that Adam just referenced, um, you know, that's our opportunity to take the latest and greatest technology, give it to a unit for deliberate experimentation, and then get that feedback, then feed it to the requirements writers. You know, all, all that feedback that we gather, we give it to the requirements writers, we share it uh, for them to make a decision uh, and go forward and, get, and hopefully it gets fielded to the Marines. But that's essentially what we do at the, at the lab. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, Adam, for you, how do you best describe the role of RICO within the Australian Army? RICO's role is really to explore the the emerging technologies um, thematically across AI, robotics and autonomous systems, power and energy, uh, and quantum technologies, um, and to support that whole of ecosystem environment for Army to transition everyone into being an innovator across the army and, and really leveraging the people like Spike talked about, you know, the guy creating cables or the person that's building software uh, in their spare time, they, they can put that to use um, for us. So Rico is really that epicenter of trying to lead that effort and forge forward on behalf of, uh, on behalf of army. Um, one of our key roles, I think, is really setting the demand signal of the future of saying these technologies are coming and this is how we think they can use. So it's Typically, we've been technology-led and very much, here's an, here's an interesting piece of tech, how can we use it in our force? But I think we're starting to transition away, or towards, I should say, being concept-led around how do we want to fight or do a task better, you know, improve our people, improve our processes, and how can we use technology to do that? And I think some of those lessons we've learned from Spike and the team, they this is where one of the differences is we were very exploratory, and Spike's team's very laser focused on, you know, directed outcomes for a range of different areas. And that really allows us to go, well, maybe there's a nice middle ground as well, which I think we're, we'll get to, which is really you. Yeah. And, and do you find now that this is sort of progressing and you mentioned the young guy who providing quantum solutions earlier there, do you find there's a whole new range of people who are starting to become interested in, you know, enlisting or then finding out more about what you do? Are you, are you attracting a new cohort? That's a really interesting question. I'm not sure the recruiting side of the house. Um, what I would say is that we've probably had these people already in the system doing different jobs, but they've been doing it in their own time and we haven't had the threshold of visibility to be able to show them or there hasn't been a place they could sort of point to and go, oh, that's interesting. The amount of unsolicited emails and messages we'll get of people going, oh, I'm working on this or, or that. Uh, one of the guys that I work with was uh, out yesterday afternoon visiting a soldier who's making a range of different cabling techniques to improve some radios. Uh, no one asked him to do that. No one asked him to think about this problem. He's a communication specialist and he saw that and then has worked the solution using the makerspace, the innovation sort of ecosystem that we provided. So those people are everywhere. And what we really need to do is leverage those skills and find out how to best employ them. You know, there's the, I think the old adage is that you don't get a smart person and tell them what to do. You let them really find what they're good at and then send them on the way with that enabling ecosystem. And I think yeah. Yeah. And I, I completely agree. And the Marine Corps um, is really trying to change to adjust to that understanding that, you know, talent management, if you will. Um, and before it was just a numbers game. Right. And that's how, unfortunately, you know, the U.S. military and a lot of other militaries looked at just the individual. It's we have to make numbers and numbers and numbers, never looking at that Marine or soldier who really advanced in an area 
that, you know, like you're saying, it may be just a hobby at home, but they can really bring that critical skill, you know, elsewhere. Um, you know, so identifying that skills as leaders and then, you know, enabling them to putting them in the right position to, to let them go forth and help out where they can, uh, you know, that's, that's really critical. And, but, uh, you know, recruiting people, I, I think is, is something that's emerged. I know you guys have a, um, a UAS like FPV racing team and the UK does too. And that's something we've, we've definitely explored within the Marine Corps is, you know, we, we've typically as you know, typical military of, you know, we need to get the strong guys. We pull up, pull up bars to events and whatnot. And like, Oh, how many pull-ups can you do? Um, <laughs> you know, this is the challenge, but you know, I mean, it, we might have to, you know, rethink the question of, of who we recruit, especially, you know, like, like you brought up with autonomy robots, you know, it's, it's a different mindset and, you know, we might have to look at people who, you know, just aren't these, you know, bigger, burly guys that hit the gym all the time. We might have to, you know, advertise to recruit people who, you know, do, do this hobbyist stuff, who fly drones for, for fun and whatnot. And, you know, that, that may be the way forward. But, you know, it, it's interesting to see how other militaries go about recruiting right now because that is a struggle. Obviously, I think everybody knows the U.S. is not hitting its mark. So I think across across a lot of forces. But, you know, it's, it's we're, we're working on it. It's one step at a time. But, yeah. It, it, I would imagine it's a change of thinking. You, you could almost get yourself down to the local drone racing competition to see who's you know flying well and crushing everyone else. You want to go grab that person. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, you, you'd be surprised where you find, you know, especially the, the ones that want to join too, right? If you start advertising like, hey, this is where you're going to fly the, like, the latest and greatest drone and, I mean, you can get the latest technology. So, And, and I think the military writ large, the industrial base, particularly has always been at the forefront of technologies, particularly in, you know, times of conflict or, or uncertainty. I think it's just recognising that that's always sort of been there in the background, but it may not have been present as someone's first option and really providing them that as another option and saying, hey, you can do this here. Um, one of our partners in the US Army, he's a reservist, but he also runs the uh, uh, an entry in the autonomous racing league that's going to have like the F1 style cars in the UAE. And so what a fantastic opportunity. And, and also he runs AI for the, that, that part of the U S army. So what a perfect collaboration of, um, you know, private and, uh, and military skills and the type of people I think we want to attract. And, and I think that's a really important part as well Is it's not always, you know, like Spike and I, we both do this full time. You don't have to do it full time. You can really do it on your own terms and it, it can be part time. It can be a day a week. It can be a project based situation. There's a lot of people who, who work like that. And I think Rico has been pretty fortunate to have um, a lot of uh, reserve and, you know, alternative employment category staff that work with us to, to do that. And I think that's how we get a lot of different perspectives and thoughts. We have, um, you know, a third of our team have um, different doctorates or specialisations, a range of areas. We have academics on faculty at different universities. We have people that have been former um, p former radiation experts and, and a whole range. And, and everyone views problems very differently. And I think that's where we get to this collaboration and outcomes a lot faster is by having that range of thought that's available yeah. And Spike, you mentioned earlier the manner in which your team is approaching exploration of emerging technology. It must move and change very, very quickly, though. Is that difficult to manage? Yeah. And we, we could not do this without industry, for sure. Um, you know, 
we obviously have engineers within, you know, our department and, you know, the, the DOD abroad, but if it wasn't for our engagement in, you know, whether partnering forces or, uh, you know, industry, we would never be able to keep pace. But it's also important to, to not continue to chase the rabbit down, you know, what's what's next, you know, get something out there. I think it for right now, for us as, as the Marine Corps, we're working very diligently on just getting UAS out there, getting the Marines familiar with how to operate UAS, um, you know, because it's, it's a first step in the door. There's a lot of other conversations. Oh, we needed to do swarming. We needed to do, you know, all these other events, you know, X, Y, and Z. But bottom line is we need to get the first step in the door. So this is one piece of technology, but there's there's a slew of others out there that, you know, it's, it's important that, you know, we just look at it appropriately and get it's the first step in the door. And that was one of my observations watching Spike's exercise, the Apollo Shield exercise in, um, in 29 Palms, is just providing all the Marines with these technologies. Uh, and they weren't the most advanced. They were either first-person drones or UGVs uh, and other type technology that you, you would say, oh, I can buy similar things today. But the, the context of the operation and how they adapt their tactics, techniques, and procedures, I think was really impressive. And even over the three or four days that we observed that particular activity, you watch at the start where people have never really used something before, all the way through to then they're using it in targeting or they're using it in, um, to support looking around, uh, protecting their people and doing all of these other tasks. And I think there's a natural progression if you provide the people, you know, the, the, the system where they can experiment and they can do it in a trusted and safe way, they'll develop the techniques and procedures. We don't need to bestow that on them. We, we need to give that ecosystem. Yeah, it, it's amazing what they come up with. And, you know, I mean, for us, we're, we, a lot of talent, same as Rico, you know, and experience, PhDs, you name it. But it's amazing, you know, when you actually give them a piece of technology, things you would never think of. I mean, for like you saw in Apollo Shield, we had this UGV, you know, fully autonomous, uh, what we call the MCU, the, the modular combat UGV. You know, we were using everything from Kazavac, ISR, um, you know, just basic logistics transports. They figured out just put like a smoke grenade on it to give them cover so they can maneuver uh, safely. We would have never thought of that. And they, you know, it's just crazy the stuff they come up with. And it's just so, you know, on the spot random. And they were doing this while they were doing a force on force event. And they just thought about it, you know, within seconds and they, they made it happen. Yeah. So Spike, put us on the ground right now and bring us into that conversation. You go up to the person who thought of doing that. What was the, what, what, what did that conversation sound like? the interaction yeah so they they obviously turned to us first like can we do this you know because they were worried they were going to damage the vehicle and for me i i could care i encourage that i want to i want them to to push that vehicle to the max i want to see where its breaking points are and i think that is so important because and if they're going to break it in training they're certainly going to break it in in combat and i want to identify where the weak points are what the best use cases are out of this technology and it, it helps the the, uh, the piece of technology grow, and it helps us understand what the capability, where the gaps are. So, you know, we go back to drawing more, which is what we did. You know, this this event we're speaking of, Apollo Shield, happened in October. Um, and we have made major changes to, the, to this UGV to make it more. It was a, we, we went out there with a good UGV, and I, we're about to field a lot more of them, and we're going to have a great UGV going forward So because of this. Rico talks about the idea of successful failures. Is That sort of sounds like a concept that you're embracing with what you're doing right there. Yeah, so it, there, there's a saying in the Marine Corps that you can ne- don't fall in love with your plan. 
So it's very important. You're, you're going to fail. I've, I've had plenty of projects, plenty of programs that just I've, I've had a scrap. Uh, but we took a lot from it. Obviously, you, you write it down. You share where we, you know, as a team and, you know, with our partnering forces where we failed um, and what the best way is forward. And, you know, I mean, that's just basic scientific method. There's, there's nothing, you know, new there. But bottom line, it's important to share and important to know, you know, when, when you have failed. I mean, that's it's, it's going to happen. It's important to happen. It's how lessons are learned. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, being there observing and watching all of this happen and standing, you know, five meters behind the soldiers doing the force on force um, with, uh, with other colleagues, you know, chatting and sort of discussing what we think is going to happen and then completely left field of what's actually happening on the ground. They're really great lessons. Um, you know, we haven't done that type of particular activity in the, in the urban environment, which it was. Uh, and that that really helps us to understand where we can go as well. So that accelerates our adoption of not only the technology but the concepts because of the great work that you know Spike and the Marines are doing in in that particular domain. So it's Spike, big question for you right now. What are you most proud of to date? Ooh, uh, I would say right now, and this is just being fed by feedback that I've gotten because. Um, Honestly, it would have been one of my uh, projects, which was around a wearable communications hub with a essentially wearing a computer, um, which has is, is, is been the epicenter of my portfolio for a very long time. But uh, the, the modular combat unit, uh, UGV, that, which I was just talking about, that has gotten so much positive feedback. And I've gotten so many requests to get that out and get it forward. And I think it's going to be a game changer. So... Um, again, that, that my, I'm saying this because of the feedback I've gotten from the Marines and just the positive feedback. This, you know, that, that really encouraged me to say that. And my team that's helped me get it to where it needs to be. But again, I, I would not have gotten to this point with the modular combat UGV if I had not gone through so many growing pains and so many failures because we went through at least five different UGVs we looked at and all these different payloads. And we had to scrap quite a few of them to, to get where we are to this final product. Are there other parts of the U.S. Army that are looking at what you're doing and importantly the way you're doing it and also learning lessons? Um, yeah. So the, the U.S. Army has another program which is very similar to what we have uh, with the modular combat UGV. It's called the SMET or the Small Modular uh, or Small Mission Equipment Transport uh it's a UGV, very similar size. Uh, I think that the biggest difference is is going to be um, we are a light infantry force as a Marine Corps. The, the U.S. Army is obviously a, a, a big organization where they, they still have tanks. They still have, you know, larger vehicles, armored vehicles. We've gotten rid of our tanks. We are focused on uh, – the Pacific area, specifically the first island chain, and being able to maneuver uh, throughout that AO. So we need to be light, we need to be amphibious, and we need to be able, you know, to adapt to a contested logistics environment. So how we get there is a lighter UGV. So they, they, they look at, you know, bigger stuff that they can airdrop and et cetera, where we look at something that's amphibious, lighter, can can be put into our MV-22s, et cetera. So, um, but very similar capability. I'd say, you know, as we're working with the Army, we share almost always about a 70% compatibility with them. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is a, a growing demand for these UGVs, again, with the specifically because of the autonomy. If the autonomy wasn't there, you're, you're, you're burdening the soldiers or a Marine to 
put their head down, get them out of the fight, and now they're focused on controlling this this UGV. But with autonomy, you know, they don't have to worry about you know controlling that. It can just follow them or do a, a route on its own. Um, and yeah, it, it's just come a long way. And I, I think that is really the game changer. And really, the autonomy makes it a force multiplying capability that we need uh, going forward, specifically in the first island chain. Adam, how about for you on the Rico side of the fence? What do you sort of look back or stand back and look at and go, wow? Uh, my first, for my, my the projects I've been involved with personally, um, the first one would have been, you know, putting AI on radios, working, um, working with Microsoft on that. That was really fulfilling um, program uh, that we, we did a few years ago. And for my second stint now, I think it's the stuff that we're collaborating on um, with, with Boeing and a, and a range of other partners in, in Australia and the US um, and really uplifting our people from transactional, you know, flying, looking at images, trying to find things to more analytical and meaningful roles where they're controlling multiple aircraft flying at once. They're having AI-enabled target recognition and all of these other advanced capabilities that often sound like they're in the future, but they're here today and and understanding what we can do about them to help our people. And, and I think really importantly, how we integrate that with our people, because it's at the end of the day, we're a human centric organization. We're not letting algorithms and systems take over. It's how we integrate them to maintain that decision custodianship with the person in a really deliberate and coherent way. And, and I think this is it's pretty great um, project to be on, particularly yeah, the partnership with Spike and team. Yeah. AI is expansive. You've just mm, sort of rattled through a number of capabilities right there. How do you focus on what Army explores as it makes its way through this emerging technology? Yeah, the, the trade-off of, I guess, exploring everything because AI is, it's not monolithic. It's, there's a range of different um, tools, techniques, models that you can you can have underneath uh, is, is really hard. So you can take an approach where you, you purely explore and you're just looking at everything and trying to identify opportunities. You can take a purely ex, uh, exploitative approach where you're very defined problems and you're just looking for that uplift of capacity or capability to solve a problem. And I think we sort of sit somewhere in the middle where it's a little bit gray and it's a bit of choose your own adventure, but in a good way. So we're guided by the concepts, we're guided by the chief of army's priorities, and we're guided by, you know, AUKUS and our partners' priorities of what we need to work on collaboratively. And then with our knowledge of different technology stacks that exist in AI and autonomy areas, we, we look at what the opportunities are, not only for the quick wins, but where the long-term vision state is. And one of the things we talk about is that the co-evolution of the technology and the concept. And I think going to Spike's point before, you know, the technology is never standing still. You might use something today um, and it could be different in two weeks. Well, with software, that could be two hours or, or even, you know, um, days at, at a time. And the other part is the concept doesn't stand still. And that's something that was really reticent on Apollo Shield of watching the Marines have something and use it one way in a particular mission. And then the next day it's it's used in a really different way, but achieving a similar or a different, a different effect. Uh, and I think that co-evolution of both the concept and the technology is a really important um, manifestation. And that's where you can identify how those 
technologies can be integrated. So do we use everything in the AI landscape? Of course not. I mean, we'd have to have a whole university working for us all the time, I think. Um, And I don't know, maybe even, uh, you know, Spike's team and and the scale that they have and and the US Army as well, you know, can't look at absolutely everything. So I think it's really about strategic choice making of what what do we think is going to have the great payoff and where we can go with it. Yeah, so so how do you stay ahead of it then? Um, I, I think so... On the RICO side, having people with expertise in a range of different areas is, is really the most important part. And this gets back to why I think the people are so central to, to what we're doing. The technologies are those, those enabling systems um, to support them. And so having people with expertise in different areas allows us to conceptualize problems in different ways. And I think that's really valuable because it says, okay, well, you're going to think about it from a physics view. You're going to think about it from a cybernetics view. You're going to think about it from machine learning view. As we combine these together, then we can start to say, hey, well, there's a possible solution over here. And, and obviously our partners in academia, in industry, uh, both here and overseas, and you know, defense science and technology and the, the other areas of the defense enterprise help us with that as well. We're, we're not experts, but we are a bit of a telephone exchange. Mm-hmm. So we can connect into all of these different areas. And I think you know, that's the real value of all the partnerships is really it's, it's the relationships, it's sharing you know, experiences and values to go after these problems together and go, I don't know how to solve it, but I've got some ideas. Can you help me with this? And then we, we start working together. And I think that's kind of a bit of a reflection on how we've approached things as well in the past with, between, you know, our two organizations. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to imagine where AI is going to go. I, I think we all have a general idea, right? I mean, we all have a vision of where autonomous robots are going, right? I mean, Rosie from the Jetsons, right? It's, it's, we're all, I mean, we see what Elon Musk is doing with, with, with Tesla, with, with their robot, uh, you know, Boston Dynamics, the dog, everybody's familiar with the dog and, you know, there's, it's growing like the, the, the autonomous capabilities of, of, of robot. It's going to be amazing what's going to happen in 2050 when everybody has a robot in their house. I mean, there's already the iRobot vacuum, you know, that's an autonomous robot, but I mean, just wait till 10 years from now. It's, it's going to be when we actually have humanoid robots inside houses. Um, but I mean, that's the thing, but to AI, I mean, you know, the potential there is just starting to emerge and now that it's open to the you know the public sector i mean before we used to have you know palantir and gotham uh which was a decision making tool and and really that's that's what the benefit is with ai for for us as a military right now or you know for both militaries is for that application of being a decision making tool but um you know with ChatGPT and people using that and you know Granted, it's unclassified, but it's helping, you know, Marines, you know, get very quick questions about, hey, what's out there? How do I use this? And we talk about, you know, the hobbyist going home and, you know, trying to understand cables and might want to hook up one radio to another. They're able to use ChatGBT to to quickly learn how to connect, you know, A to B. So there's a lot of potential, you know. Just things you never think of, again, is, is exactly what AI is doing right now. But the potential behind it of what's going to come in 2050, you know, when general AI comes online and everything, I mean, it, it's going to be an interesting road that we go down. I, I completely agree. And I think we're, we're kind of at this point at the moment that maybe wasn't there pre-large language models and, and um, generative transformers technologies. As people start to integrate, you know, ChatGPT into their everyday workflows or co-pilot from Microsoft or whatever the product is, it's getting to a point where there's an expectation they have their own personal assistant or research assistant for everyday tasks. And it's going to be 
really difficult or I would almost posit impossible to reverse back to the analog method of how we were doing things even five years ago. You know, why, why would I go and, you know, spend all this time researching a topic when I can ask for a 500-word summary really quick? And, and obviously, you know, there's issues with the hallucinations and large language models today, but they're continuing to evolve and the capability set will continue to, to increase for all of those. And so I think it's going to be almost like an invariant arrow. We're just going to keep going and we're going to have an expectation of having that technology at the edge, which I think is part of our job is going, okay, how do we leverage that? Because we can't say to someone, back to your recruiting question earlier, Cam, oh, well, join it. We're doing all this high tech stuff but you're going to be typing or writing a letter by hand or something in the military. You know, it just doesn't compute. Someone's going to say, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to put up with that level of personal frustration to potentially work with uh, drones and robots and all of these other things. So I, I think it's going to, you know, go over the bow yeah. uh, quite soon and, and sort of integrate into everyday life. So, so, so let's get back deeper into defence with all of these things that you're talking about, AI spike. What do you see the number one challenge being, say, let's say five years into 10 years? Yeah, so uh, comp computing power, right? So processing is definitely something that needs to be looked at. So why NVIDIA stock is so high right now is because uh, you need a GPU really to do a lot of this AI, you know, calculate analysis and processing. So uh, GPUs are a, a very important piece of hardware that you need to get after and need to start incorporating. So CPUs are just not going to have the same power. But there's other things that are, you know, quantum processing, which is probably going to be really expensive, like specifically saying processing um, with that. It's probably going to be online more about 2035. Um, and then there's neuromorphic processing too, right? Replicating how the, how processing power very similar to what the brain, uh, human brain functions with neurons and whatnot. So, uh, enabling the hardware is definitely a challenge. But I think just getting it, getting commanders and getting um, really the senior folk comfortable with AI to help them make decision makings. I mean, the stuff we're fielding right now can can reduce what would take a lieutenant or a, a staff NCO, what would take them six hours of planning is almost done instantaneously, whether it's route planning or where do I put this javelin or, you know, do this line of sight analysis. All that can be done by AI right now, but we have to get it out there and we have to, you know, let the senior leadership know how this can work for them and what the a critical advantage it is for this decision making aid that it is about speed. You need to you need to keep up the tempo on the battle space and the way you do that is going to be a hey, because our adversaries are going to use it so we just need to be able to keep pace with them and you know and what that means is really getting our, our marines and soldiers comfortable with it yeah absolutely and i think you know rico has a range of offsets from our robotic and autonomous system strategy and the one that really uh, is most related to ai is i think improving decision making of the people and that's you know very much focused on how do we improve the process to optimize that person in a particular role there's also the, the inverse of improving the, the person in their existing role and we're also looking at that but the decision making part of it i think is so compelling it goes exactly to spike's point about you know how do we inform someone with the right information at the right point in time to get the best decision possible and the collaboration that we're working on at the moment uh, is really looking at doing that so it's it's not offboarding your decisions it's not offboarding your accountable responsibilities or your authorities and permissions what it's doing is saying I'm going to give a, a range of systems or a range of uh, opportunities um, to an AI system get it to compute the solution provide it back to me and then I will 
approve, endorse, or say, no, you've got that wrong. I don't want that. So it's almost the same as ChatGPT in that setting, you know, conceptually, that it's it's having an assistant to do that, where you don't need to take six hours to do your planning. You don't fly one aircraft, you're controlling multiple drones at a time to really increase the capability and capacity of our existing workforce, because it's people are yeah. the rate limiting factor in the system. And, and educating people on what AI means. And I, I think there's, the, the, I, I would say, less than 90% of the Marine Corps actually understands what AI, the subcategories are, what general AI is, what advanced AI is. So educating them like geospatial AI, target, you know, uh, object detection recognition, all that are functions of AI that, you know, are actually like day-to-day basis, whether, you know, you just open up your phone, you can, you know, do the whole filtering thing. I mean, that that is a, a variant of AI. Um, but understanding what that can can do for you know the, at a military application, you know, applying that, so it 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 really is teaching you know our our services as a whole about what AI is and then what it can do for you, because that's always the question of why do we need this. Spike, do you think that's also a generational aspect to this as well? Because as younger people come through who are exposed to um, all sorts of technology, you know, right from a very, very young age and they live it and breathe it, feel it, experience the whole way through, they're going to bring that into whatever workforce that they eventually go into, including defence. Do you think as the generations come up through, there'll be much more, uh, more of a comfortable element of dealing and using it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely an advantage. I mean, there are downsides with, you know, this this generation that, you know, it's a little bit different. Their uh, responsiveness to, you know, certain elements of dis- discipline is definitely different. But bottom line is they, they do bring forward a knowledge and an expertise that, you know, a 35-year-old plus probably is not used to. And I, I'm in that category as well. So, but unless you're, you know, you, you have a background or you're in a job field like Adam or I, you, you're not going to expose this. You're, you're not going to know unless you're a hobbyist or, you know, or it's your job. So educating the, the higher-ups, which they are the decision makers on, on this technology, um, you know, it's, it's going to, it's going to take time, but yeah, it, it, it is important that we do leverage down, right? We we bring up the, the from the knowledge up, um, and and bring that bring that skill and bring that proficiency up up to the higher echelons for sure. Absolutely, I think you know as we move forward in generations, it's it's always going to be a quicker adoption or that accelerated adoption of technologies, and that I think that's just a natural uh, progression. But it's really great to see some of the people on our team are, um, you know, not in their 30s, not in their 40s either. They're, they're in, that, in that 50s category. <laughs> yeah. And they're as excited about technology in a range of different areas that we are and that someone that would be 20 years old would be as well. Yeah. And I, I think it's almost a cultural thing as if you give people that freedom to explore in a safe way that they're really open and they, they you know, let their creative mind go to how they can do their job better or how they can look at things. So hopefully, you know, the work that we do and, and, and the Rico McWill teams writ large really provide an ecosystem where anyone can jump in and say, I have no idea what's going on, but I think I can change the way I do something based on this. And that's, I think, really the value. Yeah. And being able to, you, you hit the nail on the head with, you know, safely, being able to safely do stuff. And in a lot of cases, they're able to do that. And commanders, you know, on, on both of our sides uh, are willing to accept the risk of going forward and experimenting with these robots, experimenting with AI, finally, just let them go. Let them figure out what they can do. Give them, give them the boundaries, you know, be as permissive, you know, as possible. 
but but let them go and let them figure stuff out and then write the after action and then pass it up and you know we we take so much i mean i get after action reports almost daily in my email from just just various units and you know it's just lance corporals or just 21 year old kid that just thought of something 3d printed something and you know they're out there just doing amazing work and it's incredible what they can think of Respecting that we have a broad audience, we know that interoperability is the ability of military equipment or groups to operate in conjunction with each other and having equipment and computers that are built by different countries and different people speak and communicate with each other. Why is interoperability critical within the emerging technology space, Spike? Yeah, so like I said, we're we're not going to fight alone. Never fight alone, right? So uh, we need to share information, and if, if we're not able to collaborate, we're we're not going to win. Just 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 bottom line. So um, us being able to share information real time is incredibly important. So um, you know, for for us going forward right now, we are looking at a common operational picture called TAC, which many of almost all five I nations use, and many of other partners and allies between the ADF and the US DOD, um, they use this program called TAC. So uh, the beauty of TAC is industry also uses it uh, because it is a essentially a mapping program that was pulled from NASA back. I want to say over a decade ago, back in 2012, but this company called Par Government has been um, running it since, and Par has enabled it where it, it has third-party applications. So any any industry, anybody out there can make this APK, this this program that that plugs in to TAC. So you got you know like Boeing, we just work with Boeing. They have a, a TAC plug-in, and there's plenty of other industries out there. You know, both from Australia and from the U.S. and from throughout the world, and they they make this plug-in. Now, if you want it to be run onto military servers or onto military equipment, it does have to go through the approval process. But the fact that they're able to, uh, you know, just be able to create that and then allow their hardware or software to be run on our applications, and you know, no cost to us, is incredibly important. But you know, having that common operational picture is is incredibly important, and that seems to be the best way forward right now is TAC. And if, if you go to the Pentagon, you know, it, it's what's called a CJADC2, so the, the Common Joint uh, All Domain uh, Command and Control program is the is is just by far. It takes you know the the air out of any room. It's just it is so important, so critical for us to just be able to share information. Absolutely, and I think you know, Spike's point about um, the technologies of being able to share that information is so important. Traditionally, you know, we would be doing our own procurement and technology processes and they, they may have worked together, but they may not have. And then you need to integrate them at some level to, to get them to work together. And it's quite a high threshold, particularly for communications and common operating pictures, sharing data, which is that's really the gold that, that exists between AI and autonomy and all of the systems. It's the data that's fused and shared between just by making you know a, a choice informed together of saying let's use this particular tax system as the, the intermediary we can then start to already connect a range of different systems that would have never been able to talk and it wasn't a substantial effort to do it for our current collaboration nor would it be in the future and so and it's really easy to say everything that we want to procure or explore from a RICO side needs to be able to output data into TAC. 
because then it's in a common format. And it's such a obvious sort of statement to make, but not at the time when you're really focused inwards. So I think that's where that's where the important part is. The, the other element that I think is um, important to this question is that it allows us to look at the technologies in different ways. We reach developing similar things and we can really compare and contrast between, which is you know uh, so important to, to look at what our strengths and weaknesses are and, and how we can not go yours is better let's use yours or the other way around but how we lift all of them up together because um, the, the robustness comes from that not from just everyone choosing the same thing. Spike you mentioned uh, defence industry there have you seen examples where defence industry in the US is working directly with defence industry in Australia we've got all these amazing people little companies startups we've got bigger organisations I have no doubt that's exactly the same in the states as well have you seen these groups come together and be excited about what they're doing and then what they can provide both countries? Absolutely, more than ever, I would say. Um, and there's a lot of uh, industries growing within within Australia. Um, some examples that we're specifically working with is the, the whiskey boat uh, group down in uh, Sydney. Uh, so they make a reconnaissance vessel and, you know, we want to put payloads on boats. So obviously, uh, we know our plan is to put tethered US and other sensors on these boats. But, um, you know, that's just one company, another one, Athena AI uh, in, the, in the Skyborne Technologies Group. Uh, we work with them very frequently. So they, they're, they're working with PAR government. They make a an application for TAC. Um, and essentially, there you go. It, it puts AI onto our common operational picture for, for a decision-making tool. So uh, we see a lot of collaboration that typically, you know, we have to make the introduction as, as uh, you know, military entities to, to go ahead and make the connection. Um, but typically these groups, you know, take off running and, you know, we've seen a lot of progress. And, and that's what our events typically are. Um, you know, uh, Adam mentioned, you know, this event that we're doing in April and May. Um, all our planning groups are about syncing up these these U.S. companies and, uh, you know, these Australian companies together to make this event happen. And we couldn't do it without them. Uh, it's very important that we establish this collaboration. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the benefits certainly from our side is tapping into the ecosystem that Spike and, you know, the whole U.S. Department of Defense Enterprise has. It's just so huge. Uh, and it's something that a team of 12 of us in RICO really can't replicate to, you know, millions of people. Uh, and having that awareness and the understanding, the amount of information coming out is just massive. Um, that allows us to really do an analysis and go, where can we value add as well? And, and I think that's how we get good collaboration, not only between industry, but uh, government to government as well. And bringing everyone into the same room, it's, it's not enough to just have, you know, military to military and then industry to industry. It's actually, you know, a, a four-way effort between all of those entities and working as true partners, not you're on the you're on the contract and I'm sitting here with the bag of money and then we'll wait to you meet your requirements there. That's I think that's an older way of doing business now that we're we're moving towards more partnerships that develop things together and, and from my perspective it gets to the, you know, we've got to evolve the concept while we fix the technology and we can't do it alone. No one can. So we've so far heard all about the collaboration and, you know, in the interest of healthy rivalry and, of course, international relations. Who's doing it the best? <laughs> so this is the best part. We, we both are because we're doing two different parts yeah. in the one activity. Sure. So um, it's it's a, a cycle to look at how we find and detect things and then how we affect them afterwards. 
And the best way is not to duplicate, but to collaborate, which is what we're doing. So our technologies that we've been developing with uh, Australian industry are very much focused around using AI and autonomy to find and to identify and detect targets uh, and, and other objects out in the, in the battle space. Uh, and then using a lot of the communications technology that Spike and McWill have invested in um, and things that we, we haven't looked at uh, before from, from the RICO side, as well as the common operating pitches and um, different effectors and, and ways to, to use that information meaningfully um, is what you know, the Marines are providing in here. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a great pairing because it allows us to use both of our strengths to you know, do more than we could individually. Yeah. Yeah, uh, my perspective of the U.S. is doing the best. Um, <laughs> Come um, on. Uh, Adam, I, I gave you the opportunity. <laughs> no, but Adam couldn't be more spot on. I, I mean, you know, we come over here and we are so well deconflicted. I, I, I'm actually impressed on how deconflicted we are and not doubling up and stovepiping, if you will, on our efforts. It is, is very much we are sharing information. We are you know, divvying up the responsibilities appropriately where, you know, you have this, I'll take that. And uh, we are moving in good stride, I would say, as, as two partnering nations right it, now. The planning conference we had today was decidedly boring, which was actually fantastic <laughs> yes. because there were no no surprises. We, we each made some remarks at the start to the teams and mine was very much, you know, there may be differences around perspectives today and that's okay as long as we understand the challenges and the opportunity and we know what the vision is we want to get towards. There really wasn't anything and I was really trying to elucidate from people are you okay? Is, have you not? Do you not want to say it here? Or say no. Everyone was on board, and everyone knew their job and what they were doing. And I think that goes to the you know clear, consistent communications and open channels where industry, defence, Marines, Army are really comfortable communicating and talking to each other. And and no question is is too left field to really d deep dive on a topic or say, hey, I think this is going to be an issue. And hey. Let's stop and jump on a call and, and yeah. you know, at any time of the day. And five years ago, we this would have been a very difficult problem to solve. Yeah. But I, I think we have come so far between our two nations in the past, you know, few years, and you know, with our technology being able to, you know, work together and you know, the interoperability, the interchangeability between our technologies, and you know, just abiding by the similar standards has made this so simple. Um, and where we're at now, uh, we're, we've come a long way, and it's, it's very impressive just to see, you know, where we're at, where we can do, and especially in these exercises together. So I can't wait. It's going to be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so let's wrap things up with the same question for the both of you. Swike, I'll come to you first. So having heard you speak just then in the last couple of minutes, what do you see the future hold, holds for the collaboration? Oh, it's going to be more exercise. We have a, we actually have a timeline together that we continue to go over and continue to build, and uh, you know we where there's more and more input. So, like I said before, it was pretty much just talisman saber was our our only event together. Uh, we do it maybe a few other things, but now we're doing you know more visits. I mean, I, I've been I think this is my fourth or fifth time to Australia in a, a year. Mm -hmm. This would never happen five years ago, mm -hmm. but I, I think that the partnership uh, needs to be there and needs to be there. So. Um, you know, we're just going to continue to add events and, you know, whether it's just these one-on-one -on -one meetings of, you know, let's, let's go see a demonstration and let's just talk in a conference room together, or we actually do these, you know, 
large scale exercises together. I mean, you can just continue to see these being added to the menu. Yeah, and I think where we're going on the, on the plan that Spike's talking about is really a staged vision that increases the complexity of and, and the competence of everyone as we go. So in the first instance, Apollo Shield, it was we'll go and observe and on, on back to July last year, Spike out to observe our activities and so quite deconflicted. It's a very traditional uh, you know, military observation type role. Um, and then this one together will be our first hit at doing something collaboratively where we both have, you know, skin in the game. We both have ownership over different parts. And, uh, you know, for us, we're doing it in the U S which is, you know, more complex, uh, bringing all of our equipment and people across to, to do this activity. Um, the, the end game though, really for it is getting it into the hands of soldiers and Marines to actually use it, which is what we're targeting in probably the next year of it's great that we're able to do the technology integration, but let's put it in the hands of the intelligence operator or the drone pilot on the ground that can start really using it. And it gets back to what Spike's Marines were doing. And I bet you by day three, it'd be very different use of this technology than what we're envisaging and, and how we're you know, qualifying and assuring the, the AI and the autonomy on board the system uh, right now. Major Stephen Spike Atkinson, Marine Corps Warfighting Lab and also Lieutenant Colonel Adam Hepworth from Rico Australian Army. Thank you so much for your insights. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having us again. Thanks, Cam. It's been great. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adapting Army podcast series. To hear more stories of Army's adaptation, subscribe to The Cove via Apple Podcasts or Spotify.